Thanks, Luke. You guys. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 44. It is a privilege to close out our series. Uh, been excellent messages. I'm very thankful for the messages God has ordained, and, and I trust that you found profit with them as well as I have. And uh, today, we're going to be considering a challenging trial of faith. This one is a, a more unique one in that when it seems like our faith has failed, and it seems like God did not come through for us, it's that kind of a challenge that we'll be looking at today. So how do we believe? What should we think about this? And so let me read the text, read the entire psalm, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord in particular to guide us because I don't want to misspeak and dishonor him in saying something untrue. Oh God, we have heard with our ears and our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their, de in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we will push down our foes, through your name we will tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and have disgraced us. You've not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of God, our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? 
for he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, such a privilege we have through your son Jesus to ask of you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, both in initial salvation, but now for the pres his presence, his work in this congregation. You have told us in your word that what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, all that you have prepared for those who love you. Things that we could never discover by research. Things that we could never think. You have prepared for those who love you. Things that you say are revealed by the Holy Spirit given to us. Things that are discerned spiritually through the mind of Christ in us. Father, I pray that you will grant that today. As the psalm says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonders in your law. There are wonders in the law of Moses. Things that escaped our notice, our reason, our imagination. Things that went beyond our comprehension, but now in Christ, seen in him, make more sense. And this psalm, Lord, needs to be seen in that light. And so I pray that you will do that today. And that you will grant, as I said earlier, to not misspeak, for I do not want to slander you. I want to represent you well. And so for me, give the help of the Holy Spirit in speaking. For this congregation, the help of the Holy Spirit in listening. And for all of us, the help of the Holy Spirit in receiving what you say with faith. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, we have a program called Log College, which is a study group that meets on, Wednesday, on Monday nights, and we go through various readings, theological readings in the theology track and Bible readings in the Bible track. The theological readings have often started with two books on prayer. One is by R.A. Torrey, the first superintendent of Moody Bible Institute. So back around 1900, and he wrote a book, as he did many books like this, How to Pray. It was a book that really impressed me as a young pastor. I was, you know, intimidated by this book, in fact. It's like, wow, this man knows how to pray, and he quotes scripture after scripture after scripture, holding out the hope that revival would come. And so I remember, this is a good book, and I wanted it in the lineup. The other book by David McIntyre, same time period, a Scotsman, is a book that also speaks of such things like the hour of prayer and the place of prayer and 
the focus of the mind on God in prayer. And, and so there's a lot on prayer there too, but it, it had a different effect on me. It talked about revival at the end of the book too, but its effect on me was not to intimidate me and make me feel guilty, which often books on prayer do. Am I the only one like that? You know, it's like, I don't pray enough, which is true. And, and so, but it, it invited me. Like I read it and I got it. I wanted to set the book down and pray right now. One of the guys in a, a, not the first iteration, but a later iteration, one of the guys pointed out like, you know, R.A. Torrey speaks like there's a formula to this. If you do this and you do this and you do this, you get a revival. Which for an engineer, that's my background. That like, incite, that intrigues me. I'm like, there's a formula. There's a way to do this. And so just tell me what to do. How to do it. Literally, the book is How to Pray. And so as a young man, as a pastor at a previous ministry, I took all of Paul's letters, almost all of them, went through, taught them, and carefully cataloged every command. Like, how do you do church? I wanted to know. And then organize it, summarize it. Like, if you want to know about this, go to this letter. About this, go to this letter. Like, as if the Bible is this how-to manual. The Bible is not a how-to manual. This is going to be a challenging sermon. I need to make, I desire and I pray that the Lord would make this clear because many of you have a similar personality to me in that you just want to know how to be biblical. Tell me what to do, God. I just want to do it the biblical way. What is it? And so you're scouring, you're looking, and you're, you're reading books like Biblical Economics. It's a name like that, you know? Or how to, grow, how to Raise Kids God's Way. You know, how to do it the right way, as it were. And here's the challenge. Here's going to be the groups, particularly that are prone to this. Number one, those of you who have grown up in failed environments, could be a failed church environment or a failed home environment, you are particularly susceptible to, I'm going to do it right. And the how-to approach to Christianity is going to be very enticing for you because you didn't experience that. And so we're going to do it right. Second group, very similar, are going to be those who blew it already <laughs> but now have been called to you know, faith, repentance, whatever, and are very earnest, like we're going to do it right this time. Okay, that's another group that's just very, very intrigued by this kind of approach. But oddly, there's a third group. And this is the group in which things failed. And you're feeling like, God, we did it right. How come things have failed? That's going to be the kind of backside of this. The rest of you are looking at it forward like it's hopeful. It looks great. But there are some of you in this room who have now on the far side of failed ministries, failed homes, failed marriages, failed this or that, and you're looking up to heaven going, God, what did I do wrong? And the assumption is, if I had done it right, things would have been different. Or if you're very cynical and you get like Job, you may actually be looking up to heaven and saying, God, I did it right, and you failed to come through. 
Because that's what Job does in the middle of his book. His friends tried to say you did it wrong, and the point of the book is Job did it right. And Job lost everything. And now he's suing God in the middle of his book because God didn't come through on his end of the bargain. Our question is going to be from Psalm 44. What do we need to know about God when our methods fail? And specifically, what do we need to know about God when our biblical methods fail? Because that ups the ante. It's one thing to go, okay, my method failed. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I leaned on my own understanding, and now I see from Scripture how to do it right. It's another thing to actually like come away from Scripture and go, but God, I did it the way you told me to do it. So why didn't things turn out the way that you held out and promised to me? And so that's what this psalm is getting at. What do we need to know about God when not just our methods fail, but our biblical methods fail? Let me outline the psalm. It's very brief. I mean, it's, it has a very clear outline. It goes like this. Verses 1 to 3, it speaks of a past victory. It actually speaks of taking the land of Canaan. Not by our own arm, not by our own sword, God did it. And then verses 4 to 8 describe future victory where he calls upon God, do it again. Do it again, God. We're not going to rely on our own arm. We're not going to rely on our own sword. We boast in God continually. So do it again. So past victory, future victory. And then the bulk of the psalm, the middle part, from verses 9 to 22 is the present defeat. You've rejected, you've disgraced, you've not gone out with our armies. And then the last part, verses 23 to 26, is the present prayer, which is where we'll end today. What do we call upon God to do? We're an evangelical church. Next week, I hope to talk about what does it mean to be an evangelical versus a Protestant. It's a different, it's a subset, it's a movement. And the evangelical church has a glorious past. If you don't know about this past, let me just fill you in a little bit. The first great awakening in New England, in America, and Scotland, and Wales, and England, they're called the evangelical awakening, or the evangelical revivals, is a time when God poured out his spirit in a mighty way. Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of Northampton in Massachusetts, northern Massachusetts, spoke about how in December of 1734, about five or six youth, young people, we would call them teenagers, came to faith in Jesus Christ. One of them was a company keeper. I like that name. In other words, she was a gadabout. This young lady would just talk, 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 probably gossip and different things, and not very serious about eternity, and just waste time talking all the time. Not the woman that he expected to be a catalyst for a revival, and she came to faith, and some of her friends came to faith, and then they started, and it started to mushroom and grow, so that by March and April of that year, it was hard to do day-to-day -day business in town because people were so interested in eternity. 
am I going to heaven or am I not, was the question on, on people's minds, and they would talk about it during the day. They'd talk about it all the time. And so it was just a flood. Edwards reports that between about five and six weeks, he estimated that about 30 people came to faith in Christ a week. That in that time period, it was as if God took the work into his own hands and more was done in a day or two than it had been, been done in an entire year with regular endeavors. That's a remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now later he qualified it. He wrote his book on religious affections. Not everybody that turned to Christ was a genuinely born again person. And so he describes how you can tell you're genuinely born again. But even if you recognize that fact, that not everybody swept up in that revival was actually regenerated, it is a remarkable event. And it set the pace for a lot of what was expected in Christianity in America. So just as you have past glory here where God routed the enemies physically in Canaan, you have a past glory in routing the spiritual enemies of the devil in America. Well, there's a future glory that came along. From about 1795 to about 1835, we have what's called the Second Great Awakening. I remember reading about this in William Sprague, a Presbyterian, his book, Lectures on Revival, a Presbyterian, in Albany, New York, and the back of his book has letter after letter after letter from pastors, professors, describing the revivals they experienced. And one that stood out to me was after the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit was so present, so heavy on the congregation. Nobody spoke. It was like you didn't want to break such a holy moment with just conversation but just sense and be close to the presence of God. This is the glory, the victory that is held out to us in our evangelical past. And so we have had this kind of experience, and it is tempting for us then to turn around and, and be, experience a crisis of faith when such a thing doesn't happen again. Because we can go back and go, lectures on revival. What did they do? And try and ascertain what they did. And we could go, it was not by their sword. It was not by their arm. They gave credit to the Holy Spirit. Yes, but they did pick up a sword, the sword of the word. They did take to prayer. They had means. And so, oh God, how come you're not doing it for us? Might be the response we get. This middle part is where God camps out, and I want you to feel the pain, the painful, the pointless, and the shame of defeat. Regarding the pain, he says, you have rejected us. I don't know if you've ever been rejected by somebody you actually cared about. I mean, you get rejected by somebody you don't care about. It's one thing. It's like, oh, whatever. Roll your eyes. But when you care about somebody and they reject you personally, that hurts. This is painful. You have rejected us. That's a strong word. You have disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten the spoil. Utter defeat, retreat, and plundered. And it was pointless. 
You made us like sheep for slaughter. You scattered us among the nations. You sold us for a trifle, and you didn't get any price for us. I don't even get it, God. You didn't go with our army, and it was all defeated, and then you didn't get anything for it. And then what gets double the press, double the verses, is it gave us the shame of a bad name. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You made us a byword, a laughingstock. Disgrace and shame cover me. The sound of the taunter, the reviler, the one who insults, the enemy and the avenger. Ha! Did you hear about him? <laughs> He's been claiming all along that God's going to come through for him. But look at him now. You know about her. How many times has she cornered you with a Bible verse? Yeah, look at her. Let's take a look at her family. Take a look at her health. Look what's happening in her life. Yeah, a lot of good it does to depend on God. Now all of a sudden you become the poster child for failure. People look it up in the dictionary and there's your picture. Failure, loser, failed because you trusted in a God who doesn't exist. He's not that powerful. You thought he was. And now what happened? And that is painful. The shame of a bad name is double the amount of the other two pains of defeat I have a burden on my heart today in speaking about this, both for the church and for you as individuals. And I do pray that God would bear me up in this and help me to speak with his spirit. Because I think to be forewarned is to be forearmed. There's something here that we need to know. Number one is a church. We have been planting churches. And if you look around, this church, is the mother church, has actually done quite well. We've been prospering. God is blessed and blessed and blessed. And it would be very tempting to think God has blessed us because we've been faithful. 2001, the church sat back and had a whole big Discovery Institute seminar. Months looking at how church should be done. And then started implementing it. And the church started growing from 150 to 200, 250, 300, 350 planting a church, and it's like, wow, look at Countryside Bible Church. It is being blessed of the Lord. And so it's very tempting to think, well, we didn't go after church growth models. We didn't go after seeker-sensitive things. We just emphasized the Bible, expository preaching, different things. So then we look at a daughter church, and we go, you need, here's, here's the little formula. Here's the plan. It's not just our methods. We're not saying, you know, this is the way it's done because we think so. God says, preach, pray, be faithful, and look what he does, right? And so we could lean into a daughter church someday, pick a direction, in which all of a sudden, hey, how come things aren't going so well up there? They may actually look back at us and say, we're doing nothing different than what you guys are doing. It may actually close its doors. That's kind of shocking. But God gave no absolute promise to a local church. 
Find the church of Ephesus at a certain point in history. Find this, find that. Local churches come and local churches go. It's a challenge, but that's a temptation. I hope you can feel that would be a temptation for us. It certainly was in the Second Great Awakening. By 1835, Charles Finney, the most famous evangelist of the Second Great Awakening, said, Religion is the work of man. Religion is for man to do. And what he meant by that was, you don't just sit on your hands and do nothing. You need to preach, you need to pray, you need to get out there. God expects it. It's like farming. If you plant the crop, plant the seed, you get a harvest. You can't expect a harvest if you're not planting. Kind of like that. And it's not like he said, it's totally in our power. We can make it happen. He said, God, Jesus, the Spirit must induce. God must influence. The blessing of God must be on this. But at the end of the day, quote, one of the most famous quotes in American church history, a revival of religion is not a miracle. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. It's not a mystery. Plant the word, get a harvest. It's not that mysterious that you just wait for this miracle. Just need God's blessing because it's the ordinary means. I was very susceptible to this way of thinking in my mid-20s, later 20s. This psalm was like God pulling the rug out from under me. Because I remember very distinctly reading this psalm and getting to the middle You've rejected us, you've turned back, you made us like sheep, you slaughtered us, you sold us, and I knew exactly where this was going. I was like, God, I know where this is going. We have abandoned you, we have sinned, please forgive us. That's exactly what I expected, and it was shocking to read verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And in case that language didn't come home and make sense, though we have not been false to your covenant. That's covenant language. That is scandalous. And you say, well, I mean, how do you know? Everybody's a sinner. You can't be saying that. We've not been false to your covenant. Everybody fails. In the context of these stories and sayings and things, like Job, when you look at Job's life, don't be like Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz, who eventually say Job has to be sinning somewhere. Yes, Job is a sinner. He's going to die someday. But that doesn't explain why his life has tanked now. Especially because he's much better than everybody else around him. We're to look at the life of Job and say he did it right and is suffering. There's a mystery here. It doesn't make sense. That's what we're supposed to take from Job. When we look at this psalm, we're not supposed to get our theological glasses on and and tighten them down and go, oh, they're not perfect. There's some sin going on here. Somewhere in here they blew it. We're to take verse 17 seriously. We have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. It's their testimony. 
Verse 17, 18, 19, our heart is not turned back. Our steps didn't depart from your way, your way. Biblical methods, we did the biblical methods. And then he points to God and said, God, you don't need our testimony. You're a witness to this. Verse 20, 21, and 22. If we had forsaken the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? He knows the secrets of the heart. So God, you don't need my testimony. You know this. You know we haven't forgotten you. You know we haven't broken the covenant. You know that, for you know the secrets of the heart. But instead, what's happened is, all day long, for your sake, we are being killed. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. You're butchering us. That's a scandalous, I hope you can, that's scandalous. To say such things to God, we kept your covenant, and you abandoned us, rejected us, and didn't come through. That's bold. So the question of this psalm is, how and what should we think about God, not just when our methods fail, but when our biblical methods fail, when we do it God's way and don't depart from God's way, how should we think about God in those times? Because the passage that was read earlier in Deuteronomy 28 makes it about as stark and plain as it can be. If you obey, if you keep the covenant, I will bless in the city, I will bless in the field, I'll bless when you go with the armies, I'll make them run before you seven ways, I will bless you, bless you, bless you. It's so clear. And so the boldness of this is we kept the covenant and you didn't bless. So what should we think about God when we do the biblical method and it fails? Number one, there's two things we need to know about God. Number one, God is sovereign, meaning God is absolutely free. God is not the slave of any method, even his own. Because it's very subtle to slide off of leaning on God to now leaning on God's promise or leaning on God's method. And he wants to bring us back and remember, your hope is not in my method. Your hope is not in my promise, ultimately. Your hope is in me. Otherwise, what happens is, if we start separating the promise of God from the person of God, we start getting a grudge and feeling like you didn't come through and we're about ready to sue him instead of trusting him. Our hope is in our God, not in our method. A quote that I like, spoken by Paul Cox once at a conference, we serve an incredibly faithful and notoriously unpredictable God. That's a great quote. I hope you can get it today. Don't interpret this sermon one whit saying God fails at a covenant. God never fails at a covenant. God always keeps covenant. But our way of imagining how he keeps a covenant is false often. And so 
he has to remind us, I am sovereign and free. I will be what I will be. I will do what I will do. I am that I am, and that is my name. I am. I exist, and everything depends on me. I am absolutely free. I will not be manipulated because I have no means. I have no means of staying alive. I am. And so his freedom is what is being emphasized in his sovereignty. I want to I apply this at this point to teachers and parents in particular, those who work with children. I have some experience in this. I have been a teacher for many years and am the, the blessed parent of several children, and so it's been a blessing. But I remember being at a conference in North Carolina of the Association of Classical and Christian Schools, and uh, and walking behind somebody at like you know coming out of a session, and and I was I was all pumped. I was learning all these things: how to do school, how to do education, progressive education, you know, classical education. You know, it's like yeah, you know. And so I was like. And then I'm listening to these teachers in front of me going, one turns to the other and says, yeah, it's just another conference, telling us another method on how to do it. They get all pumped up and everything. It was just these. And I'm like, no, classical education is not just another method. That's what makes it classical. <laughs> Progressives come and go, you know, it's like this stays. And so I was like, you know, I was offended. It's like I am pumped about this stuff. Well, <laughs> setting myself up for a nice failure, <laughs> you know, hope in a method. And I'm not saying methods aren't better than others. It's like Ecclesiastes. Everything ultimately is vain and striving after the wind, even though some things are better than other things. It is better for you to avoid smoking and high-calorie, you know, food. This is better but you're still going to die. And dead is dead, okay? You know, it's like, I'll grant you, classical education is better than progressive education, but it's still just education. It does not, it does not live. It is not God. It will not be guaranteed in its results. It failed the Renaissance, according to two scholars I was reading a couple years ago, and it will fail again. Parenting works the same way. How many of us have been caught up in parent movements. Maybe it was a Bill Gothard that came along, Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. That was around when I was like a wee little guy. You know, and people were getting caught up in that, or I don't know if the Ezos or somebody like, you know, growing kids God's way. You know, that was caught, I think, in like kind of the 80s. You can just hear the, the God's way. You know, we're going to do it God's way. We're going to do it biblical. And again, it might be better. It's like there are things, there's better ways to do church. <laughs> than other ways. I'd rather look at God's ways than look at some marketing technique. And I'd rather look at how God says to do child rearing than Benjamin Spock. You get what I'm saying? But it's not a guarantee. Even if it's biblical, even if it's God's way, my hope is not in a method, it's in God. One of the latest ones that has come along who is involved in the classical education movement, of which I myself benefited a ton and was totally a devotee and a disciple in the late 90s, was Doug Wilson. I read Doug Wilson's book so much, I handed out Angels in the Architecture as an engineer at my work. I was like proselytizing for Doug Wilson. 
because it was like this guy's, this guy's holding out a positive, optimistic faith. He was looking at the rest of the evangelical community and said, what pessimism. Everybody's just going to preach the gospel and then culture just goes down. Like, where's the optimism in that? And then a book like Standing on the Promises. Do you know the promises God has given to parents? What makes this particularly potent, and the reason I'm going to camp on it a little bit is, it uses covenant language in the promises that he presents in his book. Covenant. If you are covenantly faithful, you can expect certain results. So his argument goes like this. A promise of God never fails. I'll grant that. That's a good baseline. <laughs> promise of God never fails. If parents, he says, are covenantly faithful, they will have, quote, every reason to expect that their children will be saved. He defines covenant keeping as promise believing and then turns it around and says, this is one of the promises. This is one of the promises God says. If you are faithful to the covenant, then you can expect. In fact, you have every reason to expect that God will come through and save your kids. And then he's bold enough to turn it around and say, and if your children have not been saved or succeeded or are faithful, to use his language, then you rightly bear the shame. Because the responsibility is on you as parents and especially on you as a father. The albatross is rightly hung around your neck because if you had been covenantly faithful, your children would be faithful. Now, if you're not familiar with Presbyterian theology, and I was a hairbreadth from becoming a Presbyterian, we attended a Presbyterian church, and it was so enticing to me. Because I want to believe God's promises. I really do. If you're not familiar with the Presbyterian way of thinking, which Doug Wilson's thinking comes from that, it's basically saying that what Abraham was given, a Christian father can also say. Abraham was given, I will be your God. I will be God to you and to your seed after you. So a Christian father can then baptize his children in the name of Jesus that my God will be God to me and to my seed, to my children after me. So I'm going to not argue against that premise. I think there's reasons to doubt it, and I'm a Baptist in, in my reasoning on this, but I'm just going to assume that to be the case. Let's assume that a Christian father has that kind of Abraham promise. I'm going to give you three responses to this. And cause, you can think about it, especially those who are enticed by it presently, as I was as a young father. Number one, Paul, in Romans chapter 9, explains that the promise given to Abraham was never intended for all his biological children. That children of the flesh is not the same as children of the promise. That the promise has not failed. God has been God to all of Abraham's seed. He didn't fail. The word of God has not failed. Because the promise was never given to all the children of the flesh. 
And so if he's the model as a Christian father, I would have very great difficulty, as much as God wants to save, and I agree with that, save my children, and his heart is big, and he often does. I do not have the absolute promise because of his sovereignty. Number two, even in the law of Moses itself, Deuteronomy 21 says, makes provision for failed parenting that was faithful parenting. That if a, if a parent has a mom and a dad have a child who is stubborn and rebellious, even though they were trained, the text says, they were to bring them before the magistrates and they were put to death. It's a very serious thing to let such continue in the community. But that's a provision in the law of Moses itself. Even under the law, that was given as a provision. The case was held out that somebody could train a child and it not succeed. Number three, this psalm tells us, to use the language of Doug Wilson, you can be covenantly faithful and God doesn't come through. To be so bold as to say, who believed the promises? Well, let's go around the congregation and look at whose kids turned out. Goes beyond this kind of a psalm. Because that would be saying, well, who's been faithful to the covenant? Let's go out and see who won their battles. Well, you guys definitely didn't win the battle. I guess you weren't faithful to the covenant. And you'd be like, they'd be like going, God knows we were faithful to the covenant. God knows we didn't forget him. God knows we didn't depart from his way. And look what happened. So I want to like disabuse you from that kind of expectation. It very much reminds me of the charismatic approach to the promises of the Bible of healing. I can quote you promises from the Old Testament about healing just like promises about the children being blessed after the man who fears God. Those are there. They are general things, yes. They are not absolute guarantees unless, and I'm going to give a second point, you see them in a different light. But they're very much like the charismatic who could come to somebody and say, well, how come you're not healed? Don't you know the promises of God? Aren't you believing the promises of God? Because if you believe the promises of God, you would be healed. The reason why I suspect God emphasizes four verses after the pain and the pointlessness, four verses on the bad name. One of the things I suspect God is doing is he's putting us to the test. Those who are leaders in church, when a church fails, those who are leaders in a home, when a home fails or a marriage fails, he's putting us to the test. Was your keeping my ways more about your name or about my name? Is it more about your identity of being a good dad, a good pastor, a good wife, or is it about me? Because when you get to verse 22, it says, for your sake we are killed all day long. This is ultimately about what God is doing for God's name and sometimes he lets our name get trashed and people look at us with a kind of, huh, yeah, some parent he is, some pastor that guy is. Just look at his church. And our name is taunted, derided, and trashed. And yet for his, for his name and his sake, 
Our hope needs to be in our God, not our method. I hope you can see that now. And our goal needs to be for his name, not our name. That's number the second part of that. Our hope needs to be in God's method, and our goal needs to be God's name. He'll test us on this. But here's the second thing you need to know about God. Because at this point, some of you are going, good night, Pastor Bob. I mean, you have just like... You're you're hanging God out to dry. And I'm saying, no, God is not a God who leaves people hanging. He comes through. I've staked my soul on this. God keeps his promises. He does not fail at the covenant. Actually, I'm in agreement with you. That's why the second point is very important. The second point is this. God's pattern of fulfilling his covenant is death and resurrection not linear. We often think we see A, if you do A, then you get B, and we draw a straight line. (laughs) Our imagination goes, wow, we see our kids wonderfully loving God. We see our church wonderfully growing. And then all of a sudden things go south. They go left. They go out the door, and we go, what happened? I don't get it. Because God often lets things die before he fulfills the promise through raising them from the dead. Long before there was a Deuteronomy 28, there was a Genesis 22. If Abraham is our model, then we need to carefully note Abraham was called to sacrifice the child of promise. It would feel like the story should end after Abraham gets the child. The boy is here. He fulfilled 25 years of waiting. It's like, wow. But it doesn't end. And Abraham tells his servants, after we have worshipped, we, I and the boy, shall come back. And the writer of Hebrew picks that up and says, he believes God's going to raise him from the dead. This is how God fulfills his covenants. Through death and resurrection. This is a death. The end of this psalm says, our soul cleaves to the dust. That's death language. We need to be redeemed. Psalm 49 and other songs of chorus psalm speaks about that as resurrection. This is a death and resurrection predicament. The hope of this psalm is in resurrection, and that's why he keeps praying. It isn't done yet. Though we're taunted, though we were defeated, though you forsook us, though you rejected us, it's not done because God raises the dead. This is a strong hope. This pattern, according to the book of Hebrews, is general in the Old Testament. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. David even called himself a pilgrim at the end of his life. A pilgrim like our, my father's. They're just passing through. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly country, one that lasts. They were not looking for a city on this earth. The pattern of death and resurrection is what killed postmillennial thought in me. I was a proselytizing postmillennialist, believing that Jesus, through his gospel and through the church's faithfulness and work, is going to have a revival that will never end and the church will be established and the kingdom will come before Jesus returns. And everybody else that says 
culture's going to go downhill and tank. I thought of being pessimists and not optimists. You need to believe God's promises. But the promises of God are fulfilled through a pattern of death and resurrection. What killed that for me was preaching sermons leading up to the cross. And I realized that the only perfect, obedient human being who absolutely kept the promise, absolutely kept the covenant conditions of God perfectly, ended his life taunted, abandoned, and died. Why have you forsaken me? That's not just script acting. He feels the abandonment of God while the enemies are on the ground taunting. He trusted in God, let God deliver him. That's the way the church will be in this age. We will die. Verse 22 is actually quoted by Paul in Romans 8 as being a paradigm. Like it's the way of God. Suffering is the way of God for the church and glory will not come without the return of Jesus Christ. When that happens, we will be raised from the dead, but flesh and blood, meaning this existence right now, cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There is no inheriting the kingdom without the resurrection or the transformation that occurs at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Our hope is to follow the pattern of Jesus we walk in his footsteps, he left of the example, and we will be raised from the dead. So we need to expect the work of Jesus Christ in our home and in our church will often follow that pattern. In 1866, a 26 year old Welshman named Robert Germain Thomas was on an American trade ship in one of the rivers of Korea. He had arrived to evangelize the hermit kingdom. In his last act before being executed, he handed off a Bible to his executioners and a government official named Pak Yung Sik wallpapered his house with it and then sold his house to Cho Chi Rong and people came from miles to read what was on his wall. We serve an incredibly faithful and notoriously unpredictable God. He is sovereign. He is not the slave of any method, even his own. He may test our methods, and we need to have our hope in our God, not our methods, even biblical ones. And our goal needs to be his name, not our own. His pattern is death and resurrection. Please note, a local church may die. There's no guarantees for any local church. But the church of Jesus Christ, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will prevail. The gates of hell is the doorway to death. It's death, the doorway to Sheol. It will die and die and die all day long. The church of Jesus Christ is being killed, but it will prevail. A generation may fail, but God's kingdom will not fail. Our name may be shamed, 
But the name of Jesus will not be shamed. Someday at the name of Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. If we take this psalm as in a fullness of being fulfilled, they are accusing God at the end of God sleeping. Why are you sleeping? Rise up and help us. Do you realize there was three days when God slept? And on the third day, he rose again. Our God will rise up again in your life and my life. He will rise up in his kingdom. He will rise up in his church. It's the pattern. He slept, and then he rose again. So if he's sleeping right now and things look like they're tanking and failing, perhaps repent of your trust in a method. Perhaps repent of your dependence on your name and your overcare of your identity. And turn back and have hope in your God who raises, who lets things die and then raises them from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, certainly this was a mystery in the Old Testament. Job did not understand, nor did you ever explain his experience. And Ecclesiastes says, why does it happen to the righteous as it should to the wicked, and to the wicked as it should to the righteous? But in the light of the gospel, the righteous one suffered, and things make more sense. And so I pray that today we would see how you fulfill your covenants, and yet how you are free, and that we would not depend on our own methods, even biblical ones, and not look after our own name or identity, but continue to have hope, and as this psalm does, continue to pray and call upon God. The same freedom that you have in rejecting a method is the same freedom we have that you can save any soul, any heart, revive any church, and enter any kingdom, any nation, and plant the gospel. Thank you for your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Bob.